everybody. Welcome back to A Bit of Fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. Welcome to season nine if you're just joining us. This month, we're intentionally trying to scare me. Finally happened a bit with today's movie, but we'll get to that in a minute. I started thinking a lot about why I don't like to be scared and what actually scares me. And while I was prepping for the last episode on Donna the Dead, I stumbled upon a really recent post on boingboing.net by Devin Neely titled, The Making of 1978's Dawn of the Dead Shows Why the Film is Still a Masterpiece. It's really just an article to get you to watch a documentary about the making of the film, which I haven't done yet, but I do want to go back. But Neely also penned this kind of really well-written intro. He says, horror as a genre is at its best when it speaks to the broader aspects of humanity that exist outside of the realm of visceral terror. Any movie can rely on a jump scare and gross out special effects to elicit a response from the audience. But horror films that mine the relatable or mundane facets of our society for chills sit at the genre's apex. The Flies era appropriate commentary on the growing symbiotic relationship between humans and technology, turning the former into monsters, serves as a perfect example of how horror films can also satisfy the intellect. I hate jump scares. I hate the idea, as I mentioned in the last episode, of something lurking in the shadows to reach out and get you. And yet I don't mind monsters. I'm able, I think, to tap into my rational mind, which I do have one from time to time, that monsters don't exist. Vampires, zombies, werewolves. I might be startled in the moment, but the story them- stories themselves don't leave me terrified for the rest of the evening. So I boil it down to deranged humans that are basically just serial killers and the supernatural, demons, the devil. Those things terrify me. Humans are unpredictable. And and we talked about this in Dawn of the Dead, how the scary factor of zombies aren't always the zombies themselves, but it's what happens to humanity. And the thought of being watched or stalked or attacked leaves me very unsettled because it could potentially happen. I mean, no, I could be on a road trip and stop at the wrong gas station for gas on the wrong or the wrong hotel for any quick night's sleep. And then all of a sudden I'm in, you know, psycho. I think that's why women in particular are so fascinated and obsessed with the true crime, you know, phenomenon at the moment, true crime podcasts, documentaries. I think, because we want to be prepared. I, I think that's true. We want to learn from tragedy so that the same tragedy doesn't befall us. We want to be able to read the signs, learn how to keep our eyes open, and when and how to ask for help. It occurred to me that the content that has scared me the most in the last few years, though, is hands down the brilliant yet terrifying series Black Mirror on Netflix. It's intense speculative fiction that focuses on the intersection between humanity and science and technology. It asks kind of the worst case scenario, what ifs, of artificial intelligence and social media and the altering of human consciousness. It's realistic and terrifying because just like Neely said in his article, it's a commentary on humanity itself. And I've mentioned this several times on the podcast, but it always kind of goes back to Jurassic Park, Jeff Goldblum's line, you know, that we worried so much about whether or not we could do something, we never stopped to ask if we should do it. And I think that's a great commentary on humanity and that that juxtaposition with technology. Yeah, we can, but should we? And so that really, that scares me. As for the devil, well, we'll get that, we'll get into that in the next episode. Serious heebie-jeebies in the next episode. 
But all of this leads to our conversation on today's movie, 1408, based on a short story by the master of horror himself, Stephen King. You know how hard it is to say the word horror? Horror. You really really have to enunciate. Or else it just sounds like you're saying horror. And it's like, I'm not, that's rude. I'm not talking. I don't use that language often. In the intro to the story, King, in his, the intro to the short story, King says that it's his version of what he calls the ghostly room at the end, his term for the theme of haunted hotel or motel rooms in horror fiction. He originally wrote the first few pages as part of the appendix for his nonfiction book on writing as an example how of how a story changes from draft to draft. I've started that. I need to finish it. So 1408, as I mentioned, the film adaptation was directed by Mikhail Hafström, a Swedish director known for evil, 1408, and The Right. I did see The Right. I'm trying to remember why I saw The Right. Um, I think it was because the guy who played Killian, oh, I'm forgetting his name. His name is Killian, um, who played Captain, or they called him Killian. His name is Colin. (laughs) who played Captain Hook and Once Upon a Time was in this movie with Anthony Hopkins. And so I was like, oh, I want to see this movie. Did not read about it at all. Big mistake. The right scared the living daylights out of me. It's about these two priests and an exorcism. Not my cup of tea. We'll talk about it more in the next episode. There's just, there's not a lot of info out there on this Mikhail Hafstrom though. So I got stuck on the right and then I went down a spiral about how terrified I was watching that movie. So that was part of the the watching viewing experience for me this go around. <laughs> I should really wait to do all of my IMDb snooping until after I've watched the film. It was written by Matt Greenberg, Scott Alexander, and Larry Karaszewski. Um, they're credited for the screenplay. Greenberg also worked on 2019's Pet Cemetery, Seventh Son with Ben Barnes and Jeff Bridges, based on a middle grade novel, and Reign of Fire with Mac- Matthew McConaughey and Christian Bale. I will find a reason to talk about that movie sometime. It's not one of my favorite movies of all time, but I do enjoy it, and it has stuck with me in a weird way. Scott Alexander's writing credits include 2015's Goosebumps, 2003's Agent Cody Banks, The People vs. Larry Flint, and Ed Wood. Just an odd mix of movies. And Larry Karaszewski, he's from South Bend, Indiana. Two episodes in a row where somebody was from Indiana. I love it. He must be Alexander's writing partner because they have the exact same IMDb filmography. The movie was released on June 22nd, 2007, starring John Cusack, who plays Mike Enslin, the lead of the movie. Samuel L. Jackson is Gerald Olin, the manager of the Dolphin Hotel, which is the setting for the movie. And Mary McCormick, who plays Lily, Mike's estranged wife. Tony Shalhoub is in it, too, very, very briefly. But Tony should always be acknowledged because he is a genius. You've got to love Tony Shalhoub. If you don't, then we need to have a conversation about your pop culture taste because you're wrong. You're just wrong. So June 2007 was a mixed summer for movies. It included Judd Apatow's Knocked Up, Ocean's 13, Surf's Up, and I know I've mentioned Surf's Up before, a fantastic animated movie uh, about surfing penguins. Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, not great, Live Free or Die Hard, and Ratatouille. So you do get a Pixar movie in there as well. 1408 had a budget of about $25 million. It grossed over $20 million its opening weekend. 
and would go on to make just shy of $133 million worldwide. So it definitely, you know, earned back its budget. It received generally positive reviews, has a 79% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Then there were others that just thought it didn't give enough, um, which I thought was interesting. Which leads to our summary and the way I was feeling. Uh, so it's about Mike Enslin. He is a writer. Um, he travels to different hotels and haunted locations across the country. He stays at those locations overnight, and then he writes books. He does not particularly seem to like his job. It's just something that he does. Everybody that has him at their hotel is more excited to tell their stories. They want something good to come out of it for them. It could be more clientele coming to their hotels, but he's just... he's he kind of seems like a bum. You don't particularly like him or his character. At one point, he ends up at a bookstore, a book signing at a bookstore, and um, nobody really shows up. And you do find out, though, that he had apparently tried to write differently. Like, I think it was fiction, maybe, or nonfiction, because it talks about his father. He he had tried other types of writing before the haunted stories, um, but it just didn't ever get picked up. One girl brought that book to get signed at the at the author visit and he seemed surprised that she had it, but he's, you know, I just don't write that way anymore. Um so he's just kind of you can tell he's got some baggage. And so he's lives somewhere on a coast with the beach and um he's going about his business and he's been you can tell he's been away from home for quite a while, so he stops at the pasta post office to get his mail. Everybody kind of seems to know him. Um, you discover that he he is estranged from his wife. You don't know what happened there. He starts to open his mail and he gets this letter that says it's from the Dolphin, Dolphin Hotel and it says, stay away from room 1408, which is kind of the last thing you should ever tell somebody to do because they're going to want to do the exact opposite thing. So he calls to try to make a reservation because uh, he's trying to finish up another book and the Dolphin Hotel refuses to let him stay in the room. So he calls up his lawyer fr friend played by Tony Shalhoub and uh, Tony's like, well, no, I don't know Tony's <laughs> character's name, but Tony was like, no, um, it's against the law for them to refuse you this room, which is not entirely true in real life, but we'll get to, to that in the interesting tidbits. Um, so he ends up flying to New York City where the Dolphin Hotel is. And he goes in and he says, I want a room. And they say, oh, of course. And then he asks for 1408. And they keep denying him and he keeps pushing and he kind of threatens legal action. And that's when Samuel L. Jackson comes out. He um, is the manager of the hotel. He tries to convince him that it's just not a good idea. And the next thing you know that these two men are in the manager's office and they're talking about the many, many, many deaths that have happened just in this room, not throughout the entire hotel, just in room 1408. They don't ever go in there. They do keep it clean because they're the Dolphin Hotel and they believe in, you know, proper maintenance of their rooms, but they leave the door open. They give the cleaners 15 minutes and even bad things have happened to the cleaners during that time. Um, it can't be explained. A lot of suicides, mostly suicides, um, just some horrible, horrible things. And so Samuel L. Jackson's character, what was it, Gerald o Olin? He um he offered he has like a scrapbook of all this horribleness, and so he says, if you don't go in, I will give you this book. He goes, you know, nobody's lasted more than an hour. Just read the book, steal your story from that, and move on. And so Cusack, Mike Enslin takes the scrapbook, but then's like, yeah, I'm still gonna stay in the room. 
So he goes up to the room and even when he's in the hallway, you can tell something odd is going on. He ends up kind of getting um, enmeshed in this book as he's walking down. He's flipping the pages, not paying attention to where he's going. And he has passed 1408 and it loops back around in a weird way. It's like the angles in the hallway are kind of odd. And so he finally goes in and he's just cocky. He's going in stubborn and arrogant and things almost immediately start to go weird. Um, and so that is the rest of the movie, his experiences in this room. He has a lot of flashbacks, um, a lot of memories that play out in front of him. He, the walls start to crack and bleed. He can see visualizations of people that had committed suicide in the room. At one point he walks into the bathroom and it's his dad who you realize that he did not have a great relationship with and it, but it looks like a, you know, a, sanitarium kind of thing, just a, an insane asylum, a cold hospital-like bathroom, and his dad's in a wheelchair. And then he starts to get flashbacks of his family, of Lilia's wife and his daughter, um, Katie, who had passed away, who had gotten sick. So you can start to see this man's grief. And so you start to wonder for a while, and this is what really bothered me about the movie. I mean, there's a lot of visualizations. Again, the unexpected, there's almost a paranormal, there's some kind of evil force in the room. I don't care for evil forces. <laughs> they scare me. We'll talk about that during The Conjuring. So I was feeling the general unease of you don't really know what's going on. But then I started to get a little frustrated because I didn't know if he was imagining those things. Um, if it was his grief talking of the loss of his daughter and the estrangement for his wife and his relationship with his father, like he was carrying all of this weight around. Was that manipulating him? Or was there actually an evil force? Uh, he, at one point, tries to crawl out onto the ledge. He thinks he looks at a um, the fire escape plan for the building that's on the back of a hotel door. He's like, well, I should be able to get over to another window to get out of this room because he can't get out of the room. The door won't open. The phone doesn't work. Um, and when he does call the desk, it's, it's really the room talking. So it's very Shining-esque in a way as well, that the room itself is a character trying to keep him there. Uh, but so he gets out on the ledge and when he's out there, all of the other windows have disappeared. He can't get back in anywhere. He barely gets back in the room. Um, so there's just a lot of that. He, he gets up into the vents and he's crawling around in the vents. And then all of a sudden he gets attacked by kind of a zombie-esque figure, not zombie, but almost like a mummy, I guess. It's definitely a dead creature. He's kicking him. He's screaming. He's running. He's trying to get help. He falls back right into his room. So no matter what, he cannot escape this room. At one point, you think he's out because he gets a hold of his ex-estranged wife. I don't think they're actually divorced. He gets a hold of Lily through his computer. Um, and he's, you know, please call the police. Please ask for help. Tell him to come up to 1408. Get me out of this room. And then the force, the entity, whatever it is, this evil being takes over the computer and um, she is seeing a version of him that this evil being is is pretending to be. And it says, you need to come to the room, Lily, come find me at the room. And so she is on her way. And that is terrifying him because he does not want her to get hurt. Um, but you think at that point that he has, she has come there, you know, she has saved him and he wakes up and then he's back in his probably, I guess it was probably the 
the West Coast, um, like a California town, beach town. He wakes up there. And so you're think, you think he's out of the room for a while, but you realize, again, it's just another hallucination. Um, just So a lot just happens, a lot mentally, which I think is hard because it, it opens up that question of how you can terrify yourself and does your mind get in your own way? Are there really evil spiritual beings or is it our, is it anxiety and fear that comes out in that way? I think it was probably a mix of both, but it freaks me out. (laughs) It really does. Some of the visuals were scary. And when you watch someone kind of dissolving into that, they're just kind of melting into their delusions is hard to watch anything that kind of really has to do with the mental health. You know, these people that are struggling that really probably just needed to talk to somebody watching them lose themselves to something else is scary in in a very real visceral kind of way. Um, he ends up trying to, Mike ends up trying to burn down the room. He does so very successfully. Lily is about to, has just arrived at the hotel. So she had not actually made it to the hotel yet. She's screaming that her husband's still upstairs. He is saved. Um, and he really is out sort of. <laughs> so there are actually some alternate endings. There's one where Mike actually dies in uh, the hotel room in the fire when he tries to burn the place down. Um, then it kind of skips to Lily and Tony Shalhoub's character uh, in in the West Coast, wherever they're at, um, wherever Mike was living at his funeral. They're packing up his his home, um, and Tony Shalhoub's character kind of flies back to New York City, and he's going through his mail, and he discovers the unfinished book 1408 by Mike Enslin, which could is impossible. He couldn't have written it. Uh, so whatever was happening in uh, the room is still happening because he gets this, this manuscript, this unfinished manuscript for 1408 about Mike's experiences in the room. And then there's the kind of almost identical endings, almost. So uh, in the one that you actually see in the movie, Mike gets out, he's saved by some firemen, he wakes up in the hospital and Lily is there, they kind of reconcile. Um, and then they, it looks like they're going to move in together back on the West Coast, maybe, or or New York, I don't know, they're moving in together. Um, she's unpacking boxes and he is still kind of recovering and he was working on the book, I assume 1408 or whatever the next haunted hotels thing he was working on. And uh, she's like, you know, maybe it's time to let go. And she hands him the stuff that uh, had been saved for him from the room, but it all smelled of smoke. So he decides to just keep the recorder that he would talk into through the entire experience. When he's in these hotels, he would talk, you know, leave himself notes. He turns it on, it's still working, and then you start to hear Katie, his daughter's voice. Uh, So again, making you believe that whatever was happening in the room was not a delusion, it was actually happening. And at the one that you actually see in the movie, Lily hears it and starts to panic because she hears Katie's voice too. So she understands that it was real as well. It wasn't in his head. There's also an ending that's exactly like that, except Lily doesn't hear it. She just continues to unpack boxes. So kind of creepy kind of creepy. It just creeps me all the way out. I don't like the ambiguity of it. I don't like movies where you don't really know how it ends. Um, and it kind of leaves it at that. I mean, I do think that it is implied that that room was haunted and there was some kind of force in there, but, uh, the, the way it affected the human mind kind of freaked me out a little bit, made me uncomfortable. (laughs) 
I didn't like it. I don't think I'd watch this one again. Few interesting tidbits while addressing his audience at the book signing. Mike says, stay scared. This is a phrase traditionally used by director George A. Romero, a friend of Stephen King's. Romero has said his, that he said this at numerous conventions and he often uses it as a part of his signature, which I think is kind of fun. And the short story, Stephen King's short story, 1408, upon which the film was based, Katie Enslin is not a prominent figure. So the daughter who died of, I assume, cancer is not a prominent figure, nor is her death discussed in detail. Instead, the book mentions Mike being a chronic chain smoker who had a brother who died of lung cancer. In the spring screenplay, Katie's name was originally to be Gracie, but this was later changed. In the eventual film, Katie is implied to have terminal cancer. However, her illness is never explicitly stated. And then the final one, and I'm going to just butcher this because it's going to involve me having to say something in French. So I do apologize. I do not speak French. The bottle that Gerald Olin offers Mike Enslin. So Samuel L. Jackson's office says he's trying to just plead with Mike not to go into the room. He offers him this bottle of alcohol. It was named, I don't know if this is true or not. It was an interesting tidbit if it's true, though. <laughs> it is named Les Sept. Desis? I don't know. In French, it literally means the 57 deaths. And just afterwards, we learned that in room 1408, there were 56 deaths. With that, it assumed that Mike's fate was written, that he was going to be number 57. So kind of interesting. That is it for today. That is 1408. If you've watched it and you loved it or didn't love it, I'd love to hear about it. Let's talk about it some more. I don't ever need to see it again. Kind of maybe squidgy, but that's okay. Coming up next is the movie that I was, have been just dreading since the very beginning. I have seen it before and I did watch it again, uh, in the middle of the day with the windows open so I could hear beautiful sounds of traffic outside to kind of center me. And that did not work enough. And that is the conjuring. But thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you can subscribe so we can go on this journey together for a very long time. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals can find the podcast as well. That's how people find it is when people rate and review. And I would just, I would love that for more people to hop into the conversation. Or if you actually want to share the podcast's podcast itself, this episode, that would be awesome too. You could do that on the socials. Feel free to just share my post. I post every time I've I've uploaded a new episode. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at, at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time.